Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Monday, August 28th. Sadie's birthday. Sadie's birthday. Happy birthday, Sadie. Happy birthday, Sadie. Yeah. We remember some odd years ago, you giving birth to Sadie. I remember. I'm sure you remember it even more clearly than I do. Yeah, uh, I was uh, was not prepared. Well, isn't that always the way? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know. Second child, you were a little more prepared. This no, time, but I mean, uh, you know. It was, on a, it was a little quicker. Yeah, it was a little quicker. It was unexpected. Yeah, but this time, when it came time to <clears> take <throat> the baby home, we actually had baby clothes. That was the difference between this one and Grange. Well, that's one of the differences. <laughs> one of the differences. <laughs> yeah, a little, little more human labor. Uh, you, you know, wasn't so we expect long. to see Sadie. Yeah, soon. we will in just a couple. Of yeah, days. because you and she will go out to uh, where is it? Forest Hills, <laughs> Flushing Meadow. Flushing Meadow. We're going to go to the tennis tournament. The Sadie tennis and I always go to the tennis. The tournament, Open, the U.S. Open. Yeah, which is not for the faint-hearted price wise. It's uh, quite expensive, but it's an interesting event. It's uh, it's a little bit. Corporate, you know, it's a little expense account oriented. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, company settings. Um, But it's uh, it's glitzy. It's kind of high end. So that's why it attracts you and Sadie. That's why. Yeah. I will be at home. That attracts Sadie. Well, um, Knitting or something. But, you know, the the famous players are there. We've seen a lot of famous players and there's got TV crews around and then you see the big matches and uh, it's it's quite a nice facility. It all sounds great except for the tennis part. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the traffic's not good either. Uh, but uh, You don't get involved in the traffic. Sure we do. No, but, but you. No, no. I thought you take trains and no, stuff. No, this time we are going to take the train. The last time we drove, I think. It was a big mistake. A big oh, mistake. Okay. No more. I wonder why you decided to drive. I don't know. It's out of my Usually mind. Usually you're Mr. Public Transportation. The Mercedes idea. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to take public transportation. It'll, it'll be all right. It can get a little hot. It's a long day. Mm-hmm. There was that time we went to the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we went to the tennis, and per your idea, we all met to watch a movie in Manhattan afterwards, which was the famous John McEnroe, Yvonne Lindell movie uh, downtown. Which worst was movie we've ever seen, worst I think. Movie right up there. Ever. Right up there. Ever. It was, it was mind-boggling. Yeah, it was a little crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's another story. Anyway, okay. So, uh, Sadie's birthday. But we had a kind of an event yesterday, an unusual. Oh, you know, event. I'm listening what? to a, um, I'm listening to the new Ann Paget book. Right, you mentioned Tom Lake. Tom Lake, mm-hmm. and at a certain point, uh, someone is trying to describe just how good a tennis, a, somebody's brother was as a tennis player. Yeah, they mentioned my brother's and they, name. No, they mentioned that uh, he got to play McEnroe when he was 17. Well, I think my brother might have gotten to play McEnroe. So speaking of McEnroe. Getting to play McEnroe and beating McEnroe are two different things. mentioning Michael Abuhoff. Uh, yeah, in, possibly. In the book. What was it? Was the name like uh, an acronym for Michael Abuhoff or something? It was like Sebastian. An anagram? Sebastian. Uh, yeah, I can see. Possibly. That sounds like Michael. Okay. Uh, well, that's I interesting. It. Yeah. Really? I wonder, back in the day, if Ann Padgett had... A crush on Michael and uh, well, comes through in this book. We'll never know. You got to read the whole book. Maybe it'll be clearer to you. I know. I know. There's this. There I'm are. Have uh, to delve into her biography. There are relations in this book. There's sex in this book. Now, so uh, prepare yourself. I've read about it. Tom Lake. It's not overwhelmingly oh, right. sexual. Uh, I would not say that. Uh, it's a woman telling the story of her life to her three daughters. There you go. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is uh, this is the usual Dan Abuhoff <laughs> expert on everything, especially the things he hasn't even read. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay, I'm moving right along. Yes, moving along. So we had an event yesterday. Very nice. Neighbor of ours organized an event commemorating our moving from the town we've lived in for many years, Cranberry, New Jersey, to uh, New Hope, where we are now. Well, it was uh, say goodbye to us and hello to the new neighbors. Yes, the, the Villarinis. The Villarinis who bought our house. And yeah. it was very nice. We got to see a lot of folks. And um, and the people, the Villarinis, couldn't have been nicer. And what it, what's nice is, and maybe this shouldn't matter, but it does matter, they love the house. You know, yeah. they, they buy the house, they have a nice family, well, and they love the house. Only because we love the house. Sure, absolutely. If we didn't really care that much about it. But why but does that did, matter? Why does that well, matter so much? I don't much? know, because we lived there for 30 years and brought up our children there. And no, no, it no. Just, why does it matter so much that the buyer loves the house so much? I'm telling you, yeah. because we love the house. And? And we loved it because we lived there. It's where we raised our kids. We have a lot of memories. Yeah. And so it's just, there's a real emotional tie. It's not um, a house we just bought for an investment or we enjoyed for a couple of years and we're moving on. It's, you know, the homestead. But why is it important that they love the house? You're not answering my question. Because we love the house. And therefore, it's important that they love the house. Yeah. Because that they're going to take care of it. It aligns with our gonna, views and it sort no, of reinforces it. doesn't align it. with our views, but it's just that, um, that the uh, tradition continues. I see. Okay. There is, it's a, it's we have a an wonderful affection place for the and house it's going to be wonderful for other people. Okay, that's so they, we have an affection for the I, house. I think it's if you're really attached to yeah. something physically like we were. Yeah, you want to see it in good hands. Right, you didn't, and there's a lot of um, teardowns now, yeah. right? So it could be just somebody, it's a beautiful piece of property. We could have had somebody buy it and just tear it down and right. build something totally different. But it, you know, it kind of reinforces yeah, I, I think something your it. own family. It's almost like a legacy, really. That they're, <clears throat> yeah. that they're uh, going to continue the notion of uh, having a wonderful family at that place. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, it gives you a warm and fuzzy feeling. It does. I was, I got a warm and fuzzy feeling. It was, and they're very, very nice people. The fellow is a <clears throat> professor at Princeton. And um, you don't have to tell his whole life story. Uh, that's okay. all I'm the saying. Thing, I'm stopping. The thing is that it was, a, you know, it was a potluck. Um, you know. Uh, summer barbecue. Right. And uh, it's just funny seeing people that we've been living near for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the people have been there for 30 years also. Right. Or more. And uh, it it was just kind of funny touching base. Because right. we've been a moving target these past few years. And to see every, you know, so many people that we haven't talked well, to in a while. Well, it was interesting. The means I actually knew a few of them. But, there's, you know, not everybody. Uh, you know, it was always on the go. Yeah, had, you know, it's but, uh, interesting to have a sense of history somewhere. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And people kept saying, you know, why are you moving? It's so nice here. And we were saying, well, the place we moved to was pretty nice also. And they said, as nice as this? And we're going, ah, yeah. But, uh, you no, know. No, we didn't. We didn't move away because we didn't like it. Or no, we no, no. It's, it's, a, it's a place for a younger just, family. I mean, the school is the centerpiece of the, is the town. And your connections with uh, your neighbors are... Very often interwoven with with school and, and young children, so it makes perfect sense. Uh, time for someone else to take advantage of that house. So anyway, that was good. That was it. Good. You got to admit, most of this week was spent. Uh, the past week was spent in uh, reentry, recovery mode. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Trying to, you know, switch languages. 
yeah, no longer from using Engl- our our Scottish dialect from English and, to English. Yeah, and uh, you know, just <laughs> driving on the right side of the road, driving on the right, which is also the correct side of the road, right, right. and uh, you know. Um, Throwing away the things in the refrigerator that went bad while we were away. Things like that. Yeah. Our compost heap is thriving. Yeah, it I'm is. Sad we do say. have a great compost heap. Um, and uh, so we managed to squeeze in a field trick to the local theater, Bucks County Theater. Right. This time with Javier and Mark to see Bridges of Madison County. Starring. Say, listen, listen, I'm taking responsibility for this. Starring. Starring. Well, I can say it was starring. Starring Kate Baldwin, and who we're familiar with because we had seen her on Broadway a couple of times, uh, and uh, Nicholas Rodriguez, who we were not familiar with. Uh, but I've seen him at the liquor store. And you saw him afterwards at the liquor store. That's right. Well, you you hang out at the liquor store. You meet a lot of people. But um, look, this was my idea because I was familiar with the music of Bridges of Madison County, as I think you are a little bit. And uh, I always thought it was very good, so I thought it would be worth seeing, and I certainly think it was. Um, I enjoyed it a great deal, uh, but let's talk about what it is first and before we give the reaction so we can kind of set it. It's, it's based on what we both remember very clearly was an enormously popular book years ago called the same name, Bridges of Madison County, by a fellow named Robert James Waller, and the story being about a woman who uh, was raised in Italy, uh, and she was coming of age uh, during World War II. Well, she was an Italian war bride. Italian Italian war bride, marries an American GI, comes over, and he uh, takes her home to his part of the world, which is the middle of uh, the country. What was was that, Iowa or something? Yes. It was, okay. And... um, so she's out in the Midwest and in, in kind of nowhere, and, uh, and she makes a life for herself, which includes uh, raising a family, including uh, a boy and a girl, two children. And uh, she's having, uh, you know, uh, the normal life that we think of, of that type. And then, well, we don't know much about her life. but yeah, Not the, a lot. Not the a lot. point is, there's One day, a family of four, yeah. and uh, the husband takes the kids to the state fair. Right. So she's left alone for a weekend. And by this time, and the kids are the almost And what the hell happens? A guy knocks She's not the alone for five minutes. Some guy comes to the door. Next thing you know... Boom. Boom. It's like Tom she's Lake. Up, next, she's up on a ladder getting down the bottle of brandy yeah. she bought to drink on an anniversary with her husband. And uh, that's just the beginning. So they have, uh, what can I say, a spirited weekend? Is that how we should describe it? Uh, you tell me. Uh, yeah. They uh, get to know each other. And, um, and, and Tamsin, I have to say, was wide-eyed. <laughs> we had intermission. She looked at me. She said, what was that? What was that? First guy what? knocks on the door when she's home alone. Boom. You know, she's a housewife for 17, 18 years. And uh, she connects with this guy. And then they're lovers. Uh, and then the question is... Where will she, she go run off with Will him? she run off with him or will she resume her family life? And of course she doesn't. Spoilers. No, this is an old, old, this is an old, old book. It, the, the, the thing is, it was the ultimate fantasy right. that uh, the bored housewife uh, can have uh, this fabulous fling yeah. and uh, there are no repercussions. No repercussions. Who would know? Yeah. You know, no one so knows it's about just, it. It's just like the perfect. It was a, as I remember, it was a short book. 
Was it? Yes. Did you read it? I don't even know if I read it. It's one of those books that you just, uh, you know what happens. Kind okay. of I, I, I know uh, that I much know about how, it. I can't remember if I actually bothered I, to read I, it or not. But I do think it was number one in the bestseller list for like I'll tell you more one than thing, a year. I didn't buy it. I might have uh, read it from the library. But anyway, I mean, it just... Uh, that's the only thing that bothered me. You can say it was a, it was a good production, etc. But the story just seems so silly to me. And yet... And it's just it's just everybody's but, but that's, dream fantasy. But that's you the... Know? But that's the you lead. You do this, no harm, no foul. But when someone gets the rights to do a story, a, a book that successful... They know that they've got a story that appeals. The story had enormous appeal. Now, you find it implausible. Okay. You were not in the demographic or you just weren't in the no, target I just, audience. No, no, no. It, maybe it's it. very plausible. Maybe this happens all the time. A lot of people all right? loved it. I just didn't think it was very interesting. All right. All right. Okay. All right. So, so. And the idea that there's another character who at a certain point, um, his wife says, what would, what would you think if I did this kind of thing? And he says... Well, I would assume you had your reasons. There you go. Yeah. And it, oh, sure. People <laughs> say that all the time. Guys come home from a horrendous trip with their teenage kids, find out their wife has had been having a fling yeah. with a passing with yeah. a, a guy passing through town, yeah. and he says, "Oh, well, I guess you had your reasons." Well, it, it, first of all, he said that, and it got a laugh. Number one, and number two is. This is important. So we're all winking this, and nodding. This is important. The guy who said that, the neighbor, was an older guy, a much older guy. So he was saying it, it was more plausible. He's saying, it, look, honey, we've been together a million years. I, 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 I just, it's not plausible. All right. It's not rem- all right. People don't you know, do that. Okay. I guess you had your reasons. <laughs> People love that line. Yeah. They uh, love that. Yeah. All right, That's tell me. Real marriage. The story. So here's here's what happens. They, he has this enormously successful, successful book, Wilder. They, it is such a hot property. They make it into a movie, and the movie has no less a star attraction than Meryl Streep and Clint Eastwood. Okay, who are huge box office draws right, at that time. Right. Probably the number one male, male, number the one female, continues. and it's you know somewhat successful movie. I don't think it was enormously successful, and then. It goes to Jason Robert Brown, and he decides to make a musical out of it. Uh, now, you, you alluded to the fact that I liked it, which I did, because mm-hmm. um, I like the music. I like the music a great deal. Um, and yet, it was not a successful musical. And it had huge stars, right? Who? Had, who oh, that's right. You it had uh, Kelly O'Hara. Mm-hmm. And it had Stephen Pascal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so and, why wasn't it? A and success? it ran for like a month. Why wasn't it? A I success? don't know. Here's the thing. So he wrote the first thing I said to you was, you know, we just saw a parade recently, which has been revived and is a successful revival. People parade are, the musical. The parade yeah, the musical. Okay. Jason R. Brown. People excited about it. I'm saying I like the music here better than Parade. I think it was written after Parade. I think Parade was an early musical adventure of his. So I looked it all up. Here's the story. Parade, in fact, is older. Parade was written for ninth, in 1998. Uh, but here's what Jason Robert Brown has written. He wrote Songs for a New World, Parade, The Last Five Years, which was recently made into a movie, a musical of Urban Cowboy, which you, you I barely ever heard of, um, uh, do, 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 13, you're familiar with 13, and uh, Honeymoon in Vegas, The Bridges of Madison County, and, and Mr. Saturday Night, 
if you can believe it. All right. All of these flops. No, 13 is, is Not, quite successful. Kind of successful throughout it's, the, it gets produced the now. Yes. But, but, okay, it only ran on Broadway for 105 performances. That is not a lot. Right. Okay. Right. But so it, that's what it means by it, flop. But you make a good point. Some of these will live on and people play the music, but the original Broadway productions of every one of these has been very limited. Right. The biggest success being Mr. Saturday Night. We know right. that's so, nothing. So what is your point? I don't understand it. I mean, the guy I understand writes, it. It was not an interesting story. No, no, no. None of Jason Robert Brown's musicals succeed. There, I'm sure there are reasons for each one. Parade is just a complicated yeah. story. Yeah. Okay, and it's not music you hum either. Well, none okay? of them are hum. I mean, okay. Honeymoon in Vegas, you could hum. But no, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> let me put it this way: Bridges of Madison County, which has excellent music, had big stars. Okay. Opened. What did the reviews say? I, I, I remember the reviews vaguely. They kind of liked the music and they kind of weren't excited about it otherwise. Was but, it a lack of chemistry between No, no, no. It opened February 20th. It closed May 18th after 137 performances due to low I, ticket I sales. I think you should do more research when you make these claims. But should... I, I'm not claiming anything that I can't right. back up. It was a flop. No, <laughs> but I, these the are question flops. is why I don't know but the point is he hasn't had a successful right. music but anyway you enjoyed it but I think the music's excellent now the other point I'll finally make in his defense Sondheim's musicals initially were not successful also generally speaking okay mm-hmm. right so Follies was not a success Merrily You Know was a terrible failure alright so and Sondheim would always would freely admit he said All my, none of my stuff's successful Years later, they revived it. Everybody tells him I'm a genius. But none of the stuff is successful. So you think this is going to be revived? I think it's possible, yeah. I think it's time we put our money into this. This is a winner. Uh, Look, I enjoyed it. What can I say? Uh, No, I mean, it was was enjoyable. Yeah. Although I have to say, I actually did enjoy Tick, Tick, Boom more. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Okay. I I just, uh, I was much more engaged. Really? With Tick, Tick, Boom. I just, uh, you know, some of the acting in this was just the next door neighbor being kind of a, a nosy Parker was just a caricature sure. of a person. Yeah, uh, It's possible if there was, you know, if you, a little more sincerity um, yeah. Yeah. in the performances. Well, that's good. I mean, I, I, liked, uh, I liked that too. I like Tick, Tick, Boom. I like this better. But uh, the point is we like them both and we should say... They were both at the Bucks County Playhouse. I don't know if we even mentioned that. So we just had to I go. mentioned that at the okay. outset, but yeah. what you did not mention was the director. Oh, well, that's interesting, too. So the director is Hunter Foster. Now, Hunter Foster, we saw a million years ago. In Urinetown. And so he was an aspiring or a young, successful performer on Broadway. But he was steered early on into directing where he had more success. And, of course, Hunter Foster's sister is Sutton Foster who obviously is enormously successful. Uh, so Hunter apparently is like a regular director at Bucks County Playhouse. He's done various things there. So I'm sure we'll see something again that's directed by him. And maybe one day he'll get his sister to come out here, and that will be a big deal. She's probably out here all the time. I, I just should hand, hang out at the liquor store some more. I'll run into all these people. You always have reasons to hang out at the liquor store. There's no <laughs> question about it. So. It's not the cool liquor store. No, no not, I know. It, yeah. It's the low-grade liquor store. Well, it's, it's you know, the, the state, you know. It's the commercial. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania has such weird yeah. 
was very yeah there's nothing charming about that liquor no. store all right good um so anyway so that was fun but it was a good evening out yeah i will say that yeah i liked it yeah. i liked it i liked it and we had fun with mark and javier yeah and uh you know it we feel very fortunate to have this theater nearby where you can mm. see anything right but now the problem is but what are they doing next the um, rocky horror show which i don't think we're up for and uh, and after that it's uh white christmas Okay, and um, Hunter Foster's directing both of them, I think. Oh, I didn't know that. I think so. But you're not going to see Rocky Horror Show, are you? No, no, no. Okay. There are limits to my loyalty. Okay. <laughs> All right, good. Well, uh, I might have my reasons. What do you mean you might have your reasons? Seems like a good excuse. All right. Um, all right, so where are we? Okay, so Sports. Sports. It's the biggest time of year because, you know, we're starting to watch football, preseason football. I know. I, I love the beginning of football because it gives you hope mm-hmm. that fall cannot be far behind. Is that what it does yeah. to you? Yeah. The hot and humid, you know, craziness of summer. Yeah. It's going to wind down. We'll be wearing sweaters and cheering at the sidelines. you got a sweatshirt on now. You're ready to go. Um yeah, so, and we have the tennis, of course, and Sadie and I will be out there at the U.S. Open tennis. But uh, here's a sports uh, story I didn't see coming about village basketball in the northern provinces of China. Uh, apparently, there's a big tournament that is attracting hundreds of thousands of online views in a town called, or a village called, Guzhou. And uh, it's called the the Kunba, the C U N B A, because the Kun part Kun stands for village in China, and different villages send their teams there. One hundred seventy six villages enter this tournament, mm-hmm. and these guys come and uh, they play in an arena that seats twenty thousand people. Uh, they don't charge admission, and it's just you know people cram into the arena. A lot of people come obviously from way out of town. Still. Creates a lot of money for the... The for arena the, seats how many? 20,000. Okay. Uh, and the folks in Guzhou get some money out of it. It's otherwise a poor village. But uh, now people are coming in and are going to restaurants for the equivalent in Guzhou. So they have that going for them. And it's a sensation. It, the winners don't get a trophy or even or, or, or any money or anything. The top teams can take home, according to the, the journal, a grilled pig or a grilled goat or a bunch of grilled chickens. Feels like an exaggeration. Well, but they have bragging rights. They have bragging rights. I'm sure they're heroes when they get back to their village. And there's <clears> tremendous <throat> enthusiasm for it. They've been playing basketball in these villages, they say, since the late 1930s. They follow the NBA, apparently. But they interview a bunch of people, a bunch of locals will say, this is much more exciting than the NBA. And they even get a couple of NBA guys to come out and watch it. Are so, you saying you didn't understand that basketball was popular in China? I knew it was popular in China, but the idea that you could have a village tournament that would draw 20,000 people and the winners get a, a roasted pig is a little bit more than I knew, honestly. Okay. Okay? So, and, uh, you know, it's fabulously competitive, if not skilled at the NBA level. It's a huge deal. Huge deal. Well, it seems to me we've heard before that Chinese basketball is a little different from American basketball. How so? I don't, I don't even remember. Just <laughs> not... Um, not that there are different rules or things like that, yeah. um, but uh, just a different focus on, uh, you know, 
on the types of plays and what okay, and what uh, kind of players succeed. My guess is because there have been various stories about Americans who go over there and play, yeah, or even coach. Well, they have et cetera. They got a lot of cultural differences. Yeah, uh, but I, I think it's more than just cultural differences. I think it's, uh, I, you know, I mean, we'll have to Google that. Yeah. But I think there's a slightly different style to mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. But right. uh, but there are no but Americans anyway, I, yeah, no I, Americans, no ringers, nothing mm-hmm. like that. As a matter of fact, they're, they're pretty strict. It's not like the villages can come together and form combined teams or anything or make a trade. Nothing like that. They have to be village-specific. Um, anyway, that's the more interesting sports story. You know, you got to glass on to something if the Mets are in the cellar, which is what we've got. So I know, you're kind of uh, flailing I'm, about. I'm flailing. Flailing. Okay. Tearing so, your hair out. Not exactly. Weeping. So, British Museum. There's a lot of weeping going on in the household. Not really. Over the Mets. Yeah, you say so. Um, well, museum update. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, not too much. We haven't been... We actually went to a museum in London. We went yeah, to the VNA, the, the Victoria and Albert. Right. And had a great time. Mm-hmm. And we weren't even there that long. We didn't have enough time to devote to it. But, it, you know... It's a fascinating collection, um, more about design and, you know, um, art, you know, as a craft in many ways, uh, mm. as opposed to fine arts. Um, mm. And it's, it's free to mm. everyone. Right. Um, and, and it just, uh, you know, it's just fascinating and beautiful. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a... Great, great place. But also in London is the British Museum, which we did not go to on this trip. And of course, the British Museum has many, many important things, including, you know, the... The Elgin Marbles. Right. You don't Um, have to tell me. Yeah. And uh, which comes up in uh, the latest excitement here, which is that, uh, you know, I think we both noticed uh, a little while ago an article about uh, people noticing... uh, that uh, or the British Museum was warned by somebody that uh, uh, some items being sold on eBay were from their museum. That yeah, well, there that, were gemstones yes. that uh, were clearly uh, from the British Museum, and uh, so then you know allegedly an investigation ensues, and the British Museum announces no, you know, they've looked into everything. There are no problems. Um, and, uh, now suddenly, uh, today there's a thing in the paper about, uh, Hartwig Fisher, uh, the, um, I guess the director of the museum, uh, has resigned. So there's a scandal. stepped down. Scandal at the right. British Museum. Also, not only has he yeah. stepped down, yeah. but, uh, the deputy direct, the deputy director, Jonathan Williams, has also stepped down. Uh-oh. I mean... Fisher had already said he was going to resign in a year. And now he's under pressure, I guess, to get out of there immediately. And it's all about, you know, what's been stolen, where, you know, how much has been stolen. Uh, there seems to be a um, an employee who has been uh, fired. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, not much information is really coming out about exactly what they're finding out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of a huge crisis. There's, a, it's, they say it's gold jewelry, 
um, semi-precious gemstones and glass dating back as far as uh, the, 15th, the 15th century BC. So that's some really old stuff. And it just seems like you can just imagine they, they have uh, something like 8 million objects in the museum. Mm-hmm. And you can just imagine in some room somebody just filling their pockets mm-hmm. and uh, going off and uh, <clears throat> selling this stuff. So that's troublesome. And one of the reasons it's troublesome is that, uh, as you, you mentioned, the Elgin marbles, you know, the whole the yeah. idea of the um, sculptures from the Parthenon that Greece is pressuring mm-hmm. um, uh, the British Museum to Return. give them back, right. uh, and uh, so now and and you know one of the arguments has been you know they're safer here they're in a better place oh. and now that uh, the British Museum's reputation is being uh, kind of questioned and called to task you know that's nerve wracking. Also, the British Museum is about to embark on a huge. Uh, renovation that will cost uh, um, one billion pounds. Um, I'm not sure exactly what is included in this. And, uh, you know, uh, when you have stories like this going around, uh, that makes fundraising a little bit dicey as well. Right. So, uh, you know, it's a tricky wicket. Yeah. Sticky, sticky wicket. Sticky wicket, yeah. You almost got it. Uh, all right. All right. Well... It is uh, when we start seeing paintings on the eBay, then we'll we'll really know we've got uh, well, the, got something. Uh, the museum chair, yeah, saying we will fix what has gone wrong. This museum has a mission that lasts across generations. We will learn, restore confidence, and deserve to be admired once again. Oh, we all live by those lights, you know. That's good. I didn't know it was so bad they weren't being admired. <laughs> That's a very humble statement, but yes. Okay. Something to keep our eye on, and we ought to get on eBay and see if we can uh, We could pick probably up. get some cool bargains. You you know enough about this that I think we can get something that's uh, undervalued. Oh, right. All right. I can spot uh, authentic gemstones from 15th century BC, uh, you know, you're better, more on likely, the computer more in likely, a nanosecond. More likely than I can. You know, I mean, one of the parties that bought... the Something that they realized was from the British Museum. I returned it to the British Museum. Did they? Yeah. Well, we're not doing that. But, uh, you know, keep your eye out, Tamsin. Keep your eye out. Uh, All right. So here's something that uh, I found very interesting. Now, maybe, you know, not for everybody. But I think we all have, or some of us have, uh, in the back of our minds that one day we're going to write the great American novel. Or we could. If only we uh, could get through all the rigmarole in getting it published. And once we got it published, of course, the public would embrace it and, uh, you know, life would take its natural course as, you know, we were celebrated for our writing skills. So it turns out that uh, it's actually much easier to self-publish your novel as an ebook than I realized. I mean, but, but, but really, know, we've been easy. We've been touting this in the no, podcast. No, self-publishing your For, your book. Yeah, no, yes, you must have done this we, with another partner. No. I have never taught. We have read many stories. No, no, no. You know? We read stories about people who were successful. There's, they mentioned Colleen Hoover. She self-published it. Of course, she's gotten three uh, books on the top ten in terms of the bestseller list. So we know people have done it, but this is a how-to to do it. 
Okay. Right? And it's unbelievably simple. All right. So, of course, you got to prepare your manuscript. We all knew that. But you can get advice in your manuscript from all these programs, some of them AI-oriented, who will sort of evaluate your manuscript for you, make suggestions, make some organizational suggestions, make some proposals. Right. You can even hire a freelance editor right. who will so go over your stuff. So you can get it stuff. edited. Okay, You can get Fine. it edited. All right. Okay. <clears throat> so there are apps for that, as we like to say. You can design your book cover. There are apps for that. It's easy to design your book cover. Of course. It's easy to do everything. And then uh, the coup de grace is that there are uh, e-book publisher and bookstore sites include Amazon's Kindle Direct Publishing, Apple Books for Authors, Barnes & Noble Press. And what these are set up to do is then take your book, your manuscript and your cover and get it on their platforms. For how much? For not much. They just want a piece well, of the action. what is not much? 25% of your revenues. No money up front. I don't think so. I, again, you've done a lot of research. I'm telling you, it says no money up front. Okay. To get started, sign up for a free publishing account. And then follow uh, the instructions for formatting you know, and uploading. We, we you, talked you, to a uh, friend. Let me finish. You set a price and distribution area for your book, as well as account details for royalties earned. There you go. We talked to a friend who's interested in writing a book. Yeah. And he was not interested in self-publishing. I don't think he's looked into it. No, I think there is... You, I think, to some extent, people want the endorsement yes. of a publisher. You're people right. want to be... The backing, they, and the they cachet. And they want to hold the right. book in their hand right. and send a copy to their parents. Right. Time out for a second. Et cetera. Also, when you're formatting your book and then you're getting a cover... These these outfits will also, if you like, printed print physical copies for you. So you can hold the book in your hand. So that's not a problem. Right, also. but it's it is something else. If somebody says, no. "I think this is interesting," yeah, I think there's people no question. will buy it. I want to sell it for yeah, you. There's no question from a status perspective. There's an imprimatur associated with the notion of a publishing house saying, "This is worthy. We're publishing it. And we're yeah. behind you. We know promote right. it." Right, but that's that's tough to get. That's tough to get. So I, uh, I'm, and it's tough to convince yourself when you're toiling away writing your manuscript that there's going to be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow if you've got to convince Random House to put their energies behind it. But if you say, look, forget Random House. Those guys don't know, you know, whatever from Shinola. I'm just going to get it out there and the public will embrace this. That's enough to keep you going when you're writing your book. You're out there and you might be right. I think it's a tremendous alternative to trying to persuade Simon mm-hmm. & Schuster to publish your book. You're less impressed, but no, no, I I think it's fine. But again, I don't think it's news. All right, Can you, do you have any any news? Any news? Any news? Any news? Well, what the other story I had here, you're not going to be excited about this. There was an op-ed in the Times, it says to improve democracy, get rid of elections. All right, okay. and I'm looking at that. Saying, how how, can how that, does that work? How can that possibly work? You're yeah. saying to yourself. All right, here's what you have. He said you have something called. Sortition. There's a word for it. Sortition. The ancient Greeks did it. And the way this was done, instead of electing per vote, when you had a bunch of candidates for an official post, there was a random lottery from a pool of candidates. And that's how the person was chosen to lead, at least in certain circumstances. So how? what's the advantage of this? Isn't this, uh, you're not going to get the best guy. Said, well, actually... This is according to Adam Grant. Um, 
who is an organizational psychologist at the UPenn Wharton School. And he said, well, here's the advantage of this. When someone is picked at random from a group of candidates, uh, I'll just read what he says. When you're picked at random, you don't experience enough power to be corrupted by it. Instead, you feel a heightened sense of responsibility, as in, I did nothing to earn this, so I need to make sure I represent the group well. And in one of Haslam's experiments, when a leader was picked at random, members were more likely to stand by the group's decisions. And the person actually acts, apparently, not with the notion of just pleasing the people that he knows who voted for him, but acts because he sees his constituency as the broad group, the whole, and feels he has to earn their following. But what if the person's a dope? There is that. So what you had in ancient Athens, uh, you had to pass an examination related to capacity to exercise public rights and duties in order to qualify to participate in the sortition process. So the candidates were culled from the large people who were interested and they were generally considered capable people. I look, I'm not telling you. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's just interesting that this is <clears throat> has some advantages that can be identified. What, what makes a a good uh, leader? It's not right, a practical. That's going to be thing. a problem. Okay. You know? it's just it's the idea. A lot of that smart people can't. It's not the craziest um, thing you ever heard. Of. It's pretty close. Pretty close. All right, let's wind this up. There are two obituaries. One is just one line in here. Maxie Bourne died. Maxie Bourne was a great football player. Uh, played for the Eagles and the Rams, um, and uh, early NFL, uh, older guy, uh, and his, he came from a small town in Alabama, born in 1938. His father was a sharecropper, uh, then he became a lineman. His job was entailed, as I say here, shimming up telephone poles for repairs, and he came home, his arms would be black uh, with the dirt and blood on them. It was a terribly tough job. And the son said, I'm not going to do that for a living. And he applied himself in sports. And he became a somewhat prominent high school football player, went to Georgia Tech. And he ended up uh, you know, going on from there in the infancy of the NFL. He, he barely had heard of the NFL when they drafted him. But they meant, and then he ends up in the Hall of Fame, the NFL. So he became a figure. So he had quite a story. But as he recalls here, he remembers, you know, when he had no prospects, he was in high school and he was about to go to Georgia Tech. Um, <laughs> he left on to play football for the celebrated coach Bobby Dodd at Georgia Tech. His father turned to him, handed him $20 and said, that's it. And, you know, you're on your own now. You're on your own now. Yeah. Worked it out right. Finally, Tom Courtney. Tom Courtney, I remember, you may not, uh, was a, an Olympic runner. Uh, and he won uh, the 800 meters, and he even won a relay race based on uh, 4 by 400 meters in 1956. Um, he was in the Army, and um, it was a sort of a surprise win. He's, but he's kind of an interesting guy. Uh, you know, and he was he's at a, actually out of Fordham. And the way he, he improved himself, this was, I thought was remarkable. Uh this, that spring, when he gra- after he graduated from Fordham, um, he participated in track meets in Europe. And in Germany, he sought out the family home of, of, a, of a man named Rudolf Harbig. Rudolf Harbig was a j- successful German track athlete that had been killed during the war. But he found Harbig's mother and asked to see her son's training notebooks. And he could speak German because his family was German. 
And what he got from the, the notebooks was a crucial tip. Harbick had trained running downhill to increase his pace, which became Courtney's trademark. He had a great kick based on this increased pace that he learned from running downhill. Which I thought was kind of interesting. Any event, so after his career, um, and uh, he ended his racing career at the age of 25, he promised to himself he would run a sub-five-minute mile every year for the rest of his life. He succeeded through his 50th birthday, and he ran a 436 mile, which is pretty darn good, against high schoolers. And then he said, okay, that's it. I'm 50. I've done enough. He stopped doing it. But in an interview, he recalled that last mile against these kids when he was 50. And here's the quote. He said, after the first lap, the high school coach said to his kids, or the college coach said to his kids, don't let that old guy beat you. After the second lap, the coach said, don't let that old guy catch you. And after the third lap, the coach screamed, catch that old guy. <laughs> and that's when he knew he was going out on a high note. All right. So that's all we have. Uh, happy birthday, Sadie. And uh, we'll take it from there. Right? Yeah. Right? Okay. Let's go Mets. Let's go. Uh, let's go Mets. I, I, I wish I knew a village in China to root for, but I don't. So uh, we'll stick with Let's Go Mets. And uh, we'll, all right, this is Tamsin Green and Dan Abulafid. We'll see you next week. All right.